Welcome to the Institute of Men podcast, where we are figuring out what kind of men we want to be and pursuing that vision relentlessly for the rest of our lives. We derive wisdom from what is ancient, traditional, and from the greatest men in history. My name is Keaton Tucker, and I want to thank you for listening. Today, we are talking about the seven deadly sins. Then we will go into our comment section, and we'll be finishing with today's gospel coming from Luke chapter 11. If you're new to the podcast or you haven't hit that subscribe button, go ahead and do that now. And if you would be so kind as to leave a five-star review. And if you want to get into heaven, leave a comment. It is guaranteed entrance into heaven if you leave a comment on your favorite listening app. Thank you for listening and supporting the Institute of Men. What's going on, everybody? I do hope you are doing well wherever you're listening today or at whatever time you are listening today. Welcome to the Institute of Men podcast. Like I said in the intro, my name is Keaton Tucker. Every time I make some form of content for you all, whether it's on YouTube or it's a podcast or it's a blog, I'm thinking, how can I help other men learn from the great Christian men in history and to become a great Christian man. I'm thinking about that all the time. I'm thinking about it for myself probably more often than I'm thinking about it right here is like, what would the great Christian men do in our, in the past, in their marriages or in their churches or in their communities, whatever it is, I'm, I'm thinking about that. And so part of the reason this is called the Institute of Men is because for men, but it's also because we're learning from the great men throughout Christian history and church history and the history of the world. And I'm thinking about how can I pass that along to you? A lot of times it feels like I'm working stuff out myself that I can then pass on to you. Like how do we deal with character and morals and how did our heritage think of these things? Like how did the history, how did our heritage, the people who came before us think about these things? How did the other men who were followers of Jesus become great men of character and holy? And so when I come up with an episode, it's because I have those things in mind, especially when I do an episode about the seven deadly sins, which is why I'm giving that first preference, because we're going to talk about the seven deadly sins today. I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been thinking about how it affects our day-to-day life, our moods, how does sin affect the whole of our life, because sin does affect our life. It slowly kills you, believe it or not. It does. It slowly kills you. It kills part of your body, but it also kills your soul. It wrecks part of who you are. It has an effect on your personality, on your heart, on your spirit, everything about you that is invisible, but in, in some ways tangible. The most important part of you is wrecked by sin. And so I'm like, okay, we got to talk about this. And I've been wondering if sin, the seven deadly sins especially, which we'll talk about why they're called the seven deadly sins, that the seven deadly sins make people feel kind of down and out. You know, maybe we're down and out because of we've given ourselves over to one of the seven deadly sins and we didn't even realize it. Maybe you don't hate your job because your boss is terrible. Maybe you hate your job because you're prideful in every day you dwell on how much better you are than the people at your work, especially your boss. Why would he or she do it that way? I've got a better, you know what I mean? The thoughts we all have in the secrecy of our mind. Maybe um, if you spend all day thinking about what an idiot your boss is, you're not going to be filled with joy. Like, how do you expect to be filled with joy if you think constantly, 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 you dwell and dwell and dwell about how much of an idiot 
your bosses or whatever you think in because we all have the same problems we all have our mind that goes out of whack at some point and we have to be j- very careful about what we think about and because that is a form of sin so now i do want to make a quick disclaimer because i don't want to be like everything that bad happens happens in your life is because of your own personal sin that's not at all what i'm saying sometimes you do have a terrible boss Sometimes you just have a down and out time in your life because of normal suffering or the hard times of life or for other reasons. I'm not denying any of those at all. But what I I am suggesting, though, is that sin has more power than we give it credit for, and it has the wages of death attached to it. And you and I live in an era where sin is almost downplayed as if it was just mere nothing, really really is what they'd say. It's like saying, that's archaic, that's old. We're enlightened now. We're past that. And I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. In one of his letters, the Apostle John writes this, this phrase. He says, there is sin that leads to death. Here's the full passage. It's in 1 John. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So first thing I just wanted to point out is it's interesting that John says if you pray for someone who is in sin, God will give them life, which is the Holy, you know, I think that's the Holy Spirit. He'll give them the Holy Spirit who is the giver of life um, because the opposite of sin produces death and the Holy Spirit produces life. And that's the best way to combat sin is through life. And then, but we get to that verse, there's, there is sin that leads to death. And I do not say that one should pray for that. And I think that's because this is the type of sin that cannot be prayed away. There must be a, beha- a change in behavior. It must be a change of the will. There needs to be repentance. That means, for example, If you keep praying to God to take away your porn addiction, he's not going to do it for you because you need to throw away your computer and make a behavior change. Like you have to, you're not, that is a sin that leads to death that cannot be prayed away. Now there is other sin that can be prayed away. And if you catch it early enough, you can pray it away. So you might be wondering, are there sin? What are the sins that lead to death? Is there a comprehensive list that I can look into? And as far as I know, there's not a comprehensive list. There's the Ten Commandments. Those sins are probably the ones that lead to death. You know, don't commit adultery, don't murder, honor your father and mother, uh, don't steal, don't covet your neighbor's wife, don't cover your neighbor's goods, don't worship gods that are not God, don't worship idols that are not God. Those kinds of things. Those are that's probably the list as close of a comprehensive list that I'm aware of. If there is one, someone message me, but I don't think there's a comprehensive list of sins that lead to death, but there are some that seem to be worse than others. Now, a lot of Christians be like, no, all sin is equal because it separates you from God. Yes. All sin separates you from God. But to say that anger and murder are, are the same one breeds the other, but there, there's a vast difference between being angry with somebody and then murder. So within, we have the list of seven deadly sins, and this is where we have to kind of differentiate, and that it's, I think it's interesting that they're called the seven deadly sins because they are not the worst sins per se, but they are sins that are like a virus. They're seemingly small, but they're able to kill. They, they, they birth something else. And so you don't really, they're ones that you don't think about, but they're the beginning of all other sins. So I had mentioned wrath or anger, but anger, according to Jesus, and this is just hopefully obvious, leads to murder. 
anger leads to murder. So the seven deadly sins are not necessarily the sins that are the what John is talking about in his in his letter, but these are the sins that can be prayed away, that can be removed by prayer and by the Holy Spirit. And if we do it soon enough, we the, it doesn't produce as like the same level of death as some of the other sins that lead to death, if that makes sense. You know, we're getting a little theological, that, and that's for people way smarter than me. Um, but the seven deadly sins are the sins that give rise to others. There's this guy long time ago named Thomas Aquinas. He's probably one of the great, he's probably the greatest philosopher who'd ever lived. He wrote this gigantic book called the Summa Theologiae, which is, I think is Latin for uh, some of all theology, where he tried to answer every possible question. I think it's got to be at least 4,000 pages long. I don't know. I've only seen pictures of it. I have not read it. I do not intend to read it because that's not something that interests me. But when I was researching the seven deadly sins, his name came up a lot. And one of the answers that he gave regarding the seven deadly sins, he said this, he said, the capital vices or the seven deadly sins are those which give rise to others, especially by way of final cause, which like what a philosopher thing to say by way of final cause. I don't even know what that means. So these sins that give rise to others affect you and I more than we might want to give them credit for. And I think they're going to affect you actually in a way that you may not even realize. There's this personality assessment called the Enneagram. It's become very, very popular. It's more of a typology than an assessment. An assessment is like a test. A typology, there's actually a definition of typology when applied to theology. So here's the definition. It's a doctrine of theological types, especially one holding that things in the in, that are in the Christian belief in the New Testament are prefigured or symbolized in the Old Testament. What does that, that basically means? that what is revealed in the New Testament was in the Old Testament. It was just veiled. It was covered. You couldn't really, you could kind of see it, but you cannot fully see it until the light of the New Testament comes. That's what a typology is. It's something that was veiled that becomes unveiled. And the Enneagram is a typology because it, it unveils what has been veiled, which you'll understand more in a second. And people love the Enneagram, like love, love, love. You could find Instagram pages dedicated to just the Enneagram. For a period of time, it was at every leadership conference in the world and everybody was talking about it. And I used to be really, really into the Enneagram, but it seemed like once the influencers and the people online got a hold of it, they kind of just robbed it of its power. It's like it became, the Enneagram number just became a blur of all things for everything. And I was like, gosh, dang, man, I really, really like this. And I felt like it had been ruined. So now I'm less into it, but people loved it. Like, you know, the way they love those sort of assessment things. And, but the thing about the Enneagram, the reason people really loved it is because it reads your mail. It's, you know what I mean? It, it feels like somebody looked inside your soul, wrote what was in there, put it on paper, published it as a book, and then gave it to you to read. And you're like, how do you know that about me? How, how could you possibly know this about, about me? How could you know the inner world that I refuse to share with people? That's what the Enneagram does. And that's because, and this is why it's called a typology, it's because it's built upon the seven deadly sins. That's what I was hinting at at typology. It is, it's not an assessment about how you currently are. It's, it's built upon the seven deadly sins that have, that have in a way put death upon your personality. Um, so the Enneagram is built upon the seven deadly sins as the unveiling of your personality. So you were designed one way. There's no doubt about that. My daughter, when she came out of the womb within three months, you could tell she had a personality. Same thing with my son. It was a different personality than 
my daughter, very, very different. And you were born with a personality. But somewhere along the way, sin comes in and it corrupts your personality and it alters you in a bit. And you're very different than your, you, how you were as a child. And that's why a lot of people are all about their inner child, how they were when, before sin had corrupted them. And the Enneagram, that's why it has all these moving lines because it's like you go to health or unhealth, stress or unstress. And, and it has ancient Christian origins, the Enneagram does, it be built on the seven deadly sins. So there's this, po- the most popular Enneagram book on the market is called The Road Back to You by Ian Morgan Cron. I believe is how you say his name. It's a yellow book. And this is what he says in the opening of his book about the origins of the Enneagram. Some trace its, this is a quote, some trace its origins of the Enneagram back to a Christian monk named Evagrius, whose teachings formed the basis for what later became the seven deadly sins. Then the author goes on to explain how the seven deadly sins formed the basis for the Enneagram. And before I read you the quote, here's something you need to know. Evagrius created the initial list of the deadly sins. And I don't, I didn't even look up when he was around. I know he was like three or 400 AD and he listed eight. And then Pope Gregory comes along and alters it by combining two of the original eight. And then he adds envy. He saw too much overlap in some of them. And so that's how you get the list of the seven deadly sins instead of the eight that Evagrius had come up with. And I only say that because the author is going to reference Pope Gregory for the second quote, not Evagrius. And I just didn't want you to be confused. And you might be like, well, you just confused me anyway. (laughs) It has ancient Christian origins, (laughs) origins, ancient Christian origins, and it's an amazing tool. So here's here's the other quote. Every Enneagram number has a unique passion or deadly sin that drives the number's behavior. The teachers who developed the Enneagram saw that each of the nine numbers had a particular weakness or temptation to commit one of the seven deadly sins, drawn from the list of Pope Gregory, which he composed in the 6th century, plus fear and deceit. So they added two more because there's nine numbers on the Enneagram. Along the way, a wise person added these two, which is nice because now no one needs to feel left out. (laughs) That's part of the quote. Each personality's deadly sin is like an addictive, involuntary, repeat, involuntarily repeated behavior that we can only be free of when we recognize how often we give it the keys to drive our personality. Again, let me talk about myself on the Enneagram, and and we're going to come back to the seven deadly sins. Um, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. That's that's my typology. That's my number. So it, my assigned deadly sin is the sin of lust. And you're like, oh, awesome. You're disgusting. No. So in order to really understand how it's built in as a deadly sin, it needs to be that needs to be expounded. If you think of it just as as sexual lust, you're going to miss the fullness of what lust is. One of the things that makes lust lust is the detachment from one individual from the other. So porn is lustful, not just because there's sex in it, but it's because there's a detachment from one person to the other in a sexual act. And in eight, basically he forgets that he is attached to other people. And so he lives his life as if other people aren't even part, aren't even affected by all of his decisions. And he tends to eights tend to be very intense. People feel like they've been bulldozed by type eights a lot because the eights don't even realize how intense they are. And because they have no you know, attachment to other people as part of their sin nature, they don't even realize they're bulldozing over people. It actually says in the book that uh, hates are the least aware number of all of them, which is like, awesome. I'm not even aware of. 
how I am. Um, now, so that that's a type eight. There, uh, there's another example. Uh, the nine, the type nine on the Enneagram is the, has the sin of slothfulness. These are people who fall asleep on their lives. They fall asleep spiritually. They fall asleep on their families. And we're going to get more to the fullness of sloth later. But these are people who fall asleep on what they're supposed to be doing. Now, before we go any further, you need to understand, like you and I, we are not victims of our personality and of our sins. If we live our lives as if we are victims of our sin or of our personality, or we will just turn any assessment we turn we take or any way of or about our, anything about us that we'll just take it as an explanation for how we are, as a license to do whatever we want, and we'll never actually do the hard work of growing into Christ likeness. Which was one of my um, grievances about what the Enneagram became once influencers got a hold of it. Is it? It became licensed to just be how you were, just like, oh, I'm just a six. I'm just, I'm just a four. I'm just. This is just how I am. It's like, no, this is supposed to show you your blind spots. It's like it's. You don't want this thing to be permissive. It's a tool to help you grow because it's built upon the seven deadly sins. And when you study the Enneagram, which I think you should do, go get yourself the Road Back to You by Ian Morgan Cron. It feels like it's reading your mail because it's showing you those deadly sins that are like a virus that are seemingly small inside of you, but then grow into other stuff and, and it manifests in certain behaviors and it's and it manifests under stress in a certain way and it manifests under uh, when your life is going well in a certain way. Opens your eyes to see like, oh, a lot of my life is being controlled by one of these seven deadly sins. My gosh. And then my personality is suddenly taking over my will. And because you and I are not victims, we have to use our will and the word and the spirit and grace and other means at our disposal to rule over our personality, to bring it into subjection to Jesus Christ in his way. That's one of the things that we have to do. We are not victims of our sins. Sin, you got to remember, sin is deadly. affects you. It affects others. It creates death in your soul. It leads you down a path you do not want to go. And like, what if, what if, just what if your sin, one of these even deadly sins that it seems seemingly small, what if it's robbing you of peace and love and joy and the strength of being a man? Like, what if that's true? What if part of your mental health issues are because you are slothful or prideful or lustful? What if you can't sleep or talk to that guy at work because you're actually filled with wrath? You know those arguments you have in your head over and over and over again that you people can see on your face but you can't verbalize? Have you considered that maybe that's what's going on with you? Maybe it's actually you can't maybe you can't talk to your wife about your marriage problems because you're too prideful to even bring it up so you just sit there in silence dying on the inside instead. Maybe you do that. I've said this before and I'll say it now. I've had to do some reflecting on why I've been so miserable at different parts of my life. And especially last week and last time last week, it's because it was, I was filled with pride. I was, I was, I was puffed up with pride and I wanted to point my finger at everyone or everything else. And I didn't realize it was my pride that was keeping me from understanding why I was downcast. It was, it was, it was the soul. It was the cause and our, what I what I'm trying to get us to understand is that this sin that we all have that robs us of our life has been diminished 
And I think it's time we recognize the cancer that's in us. Even if you have to use a tool like the Enneagram, I think the Enneagram is great for that. If it becomes anything other than that, you know, it becomes, you might be misusing it. But I think we need to start to realize that there are seven, there are sins that produce death in us and they start seemingly small and they produce worse things later. And we need to catch them when they are young. So I want to go through the seven deadly sins and talk like identify what they are. And then I'm going to give you the antidote because each one of the anti- each one of the seven deadly sins has an antidote. It has an opposite virtue that you can replace with, uh, you can use to replace the deadliness of the sin. Okay. Now I'm going to use people's words that are not mine because there are people who are way smarter than me, including C.S. Lewis, who have written about these different sins. So I'm going to be quoting a lot of people during this. So don't think any of this is just my knowledge. I, I literally quoted people. The first one, and these are actually in order by, I guess, deadliness, you could say, by the, um, you know, one of these is the flu and one of these is COVID. We'll put it that way. You know, I'm, I'm kidding. There's seven of them, but uh, they're ranked. They're in order. They're, and they were decided by people, you know, a long time ago. Okay, so the first one, the first deadly sin is pride. It's what C.S. Lewis called pride, the anti-god. And that's why the book of Proverbs singles it out as the single vice that precedes the fall of mankind. Pride it says this in Proverbs 16. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's like the gateway vice that tells me that reliance on another is below me and that the relationship is too risky or I don't need God. And C.S. Lewis, again, he called it the sin that we all possess and the least aware like the less aware we are that we have pride, the more filled with pride we probably are. You're like, awesome. Uh, here is, there are several forms of pride. One of the forms of pride is there are those little lies that we tell others to make ourselves look better. We just, there are little white lies that we, I fall for these all the time and I, I repent all the time. The second form of pride, it's very American, it's very male. Instead of giving glory to God, uh, for everything that we have possession of, or we think, oh, look how hard I've worked. Look how hard I've trained. Look how hard I've toiled. Look how hard I've sweated. Even though Paul wrote in Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Or in Deuteronomy, I believe it's six, or maybe it's eight. Maybe it's eight. The wealth that you have is given by God. Um, God gives you the power to get wealth. And then there's the third. It's the uh, form of pride that says, my ardent faith is due to having having read the right book and having fallen with the right Christians or understood, took the right class. Again, it's all received. It's been handed down over and over and over again. If you have any knowledge of Christ, it's because it's been handed down and pride would be like, Oh, look how smart I am. Pride manifests itself in several ways. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say, I think men might struggle with pride more than women. I, I, I think that might be the primary sin of men. And I actually think the primary sin of women, if you were to, you know, of the seven deadly ones would actually be envy. And I'm just, I'm just going out on a limb saying, I think that is, this. I think men struggle with pride, which is why it's so hard for men to worship God uh, in our prideful heart. We believe we do not need him. And I think women struggle with envy far more than men. Um, envy is inherently selfish. It's the opposite opposite of fraternal charity which is why I think Paul said that women are saved through childbearing. It's through the giving of life to children and loving them well that um, 
helps women put to death envy. And I think it's no coincidence that as we have removed um, the, we've kind of just been like, don't have children, women. We've also seen this uprise in odd feminism where women are just the best they can think of is like, I want everything that a man has and I want to put death to men. It's like that Genesis three curse all over. And I think there, there's a reason for that. And the second sin on the list of seven deadly sins is envy. So pride is first. And I think that's the primary sin of man. And then there's envy, which, which I think, and I could be wrong. I was just, this is just, I'm throwing out a theory. Obviously we all struggle in many ways with all of the sins, but the second one is, is envy. Envy is a disordered sorrow over something that someone else has. And we wish to detract from it. It's being, it's the covetous, it's covetousness. It's that's on the 10 commandments. It's looking at what other people have and wishing you had it, or you're angry at God for how things have been um, ordered in your life. You think God did a poor job arranging the gifts in the goods of his creation. It should have come back to you this way, or it should have gone to them this way. You, you're, you're sitting there, you're like wishing, why is it? Why didn't God consult me when he made everything? It's the opposite of, of charity. It's the opposite of love. Envy is. And I forgot to give you the, I forgot to give you the, uh, um, antidote to pride. The, uh, the antidote to pride is humility. Humble yourselves. Um, think less of yourselves and more of others. Just try to not think about yourself at all. Think about others. The opposite of envy is charity or charity is a word for love. That means to will the good of another. That is, that's the definition to will the good of another. So instead of wishing things were different, the way you combat envy, because men, even though women have envy and men clearly have envy, all people have envy. The way to combat envy is through, uh, willing the good of another, being able to celebrate the good of another. Okay. The next deadly sin is wrath or anger. Um, it is that boiling, I don't even know what a boiling water inside your soul that wants to lash out at another person, but ref, almost refuses to do it. Well, sometimes people do lose control of their anger. And at least if you do that, you can repent and apologize and all that stuff. But a lot of times people just let it boil in there and it becomes a root of bitterness and it separates close friends. It has anger has caused a lot of really bad problems in the world. I think that's why Jesus started with it in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He begins when he starts getting into the, you've heard it was said, he begins with anger. Now the opposite of wrath. Now just imagine, just imagine, okay, just before we even get to the opposite, imagine you're walking around prideful, thinking you're smarter or better than everybody. What is that going to do to your soul? Or imagine you're walking around wishing everything that everyone else had was yours, that your life was like this person or your life was like that person like what's that going to do to your soul or imagine you're walking around consistently angry and frustrated and ready to rage against anybody who crosses your path imagine what that's doing to your soul well it's altering everything about your soul it's altering everything about your personality it's changing you and the thing you you have to recognize these early the opposite of wrath is meekness meekness is a form of strength. It's the virtue that helps us control ourselves in the face of the barrage of angry or irritated feelings. It's your, actually, it's your ability to restrain your anger. So being angry in and of itself is not a sin until it manifests in words or by throwing punches. 
Meekness is the ability to control that anger until you have calmed down. It's that plus a few other things. So that's the opposite. The next deadly sin is sloth, slothfulness. Now, an easy definition of slothfulness, you've seen the animal sloths, they just kind of lounge around. The easy definition would be laziness, but mere physical laziness is not what we're talking about. It's not just not working out or not getting out of bed. Physical laziness is a symptom of sloth, but at its core, the sin of sloth is spiritual torpor, which is a word I had to look up. (laughs) It's falling asleep on your life. It is, um, it's a name of, Saint, uh, Thomas Aquinas called it sadness because you haven't worked towards your holiness or tried to develop your relationship with God or you haven't taken the necessary steps of sanctification. So what what does that all mean? It, slothfulness is falling asleep on the most important things in your life. It actually wasn't until the Reformation, specifically with the Puritans who are Calvinist, that sloth was viewed as, as physical laziness alone. For the early Christians, sloth was more about being was as just as much about being physically lazy as it was about being so busy that you didn't make time for what was truly important. It was the Martha syndrome, you know, in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, tell my sister to to help me with all the serving. And he goes, Martha, Martha, you're you are anxious about many things, but one thing is important. Martha is suffering from the sin of sloth because she's so busy she cannot sit at Jesus's feet. She can't take care of the most important thing. Um, that is what slothfulness is. The opposite of slothfulness is the virtue of diligence. It's doing what needs to be done and, and not stopping until it's done. It's making sure your priorities are in order. It's making sure that you know, I'm taking care of my spiritual life. I'm taking care of my family. I'm taking care of my marriage. I'm taking care of my relationship with God. I'm saying my prayers, reading my scripture. I'm going to church frequently. I'm participating in the building of the body. I'm doing all those things. I'm working hard at work, whatever my job is. That's It's a diligence in all areas of life. The next deadly sin, this is going to be very American, is avarice or greed. It's the desire for more than we need, particularly particularly, excuse me, in regard to material goods. It's wanting to have more and more and more and more. It's like building up my barn so that I can have more and more crops and then I can say to my soul, soul, you may now have rest, like Jesus talks about in Luke. And the opposite of avarice is generosity. It's giving away freely what has been given to us without attachment, without resentment. It's giving away, not expecting anything in return. You can see all of these are rooted in the gospel stories and in the scripture. Now, if you imagined, we did this earlier, but imagine you're walking around not taking care of anything that is the most important in your life. That's going to ruin a lot of your relationships. It's also going to make your soul downcast. You're going to wonder, why am I not connecting with anybody? Why is my prayer time so bad? I read the Bible and there's nothing happening. It's because you've been doing something other than those things. You've fallen asleep on the most important things. Or if you're walking around, you're and it's probably, maybe it's because you're, you know, you, you're suffering from avarice. You have to work, 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 and earn, 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 and get more and more and more stuff. And you say things like, once I have this, I'll be happy. What is that doing to your soul? Like really, what is, what is it doing to your soul? The next one of the seven deadly sins is gluttony. Um, it is, you know, eating, it's eating too much. It's, uh, bringing in, trying to satisfy the desires of the body through food, through alcohol, through other, other, uh, addictive means. 
more in the United States of America, this is like really obvious because we're the most obese nation on earth. We have a gluttony problem. You go to any other country in the world, you start to realize the portions are very, very different. What is required to eat is very, very different. We drink coffee 20 ounces at a time. Like that's, that's nuts. I drink coffee 20. I'm a glutton for coffee. I know I need to repent. <laughs> um, but gluttony is excess, especially in food and drink. Now you can have gluttony on many other things. It could be gluttony on you have, you will only eat expensive food. Don't get even get any of that cheap Trader Joe's stuff near me. Or it could be you just, as soon as food hits the table, you scarf it all down as fast as you can. That's a form of gluttony. And the opposite of gluttony is temperance, temperance. It is being able to control those, those desires, those cravings that kind of control your life. That's what that is. The uh, next deadly sin, the final deadly sin is lust, lust. It's the, you know, and we explained it up, up top when I was talking about me, it's the detachment from another person. And then it's, you know, it's really tied to sexual pleasure. Um, but it's that detachment from another person that makes lust so deadly. Um, and if anything has taught us over the last couple decades in the last 10 years, what happens when you have unrestrained lust and you start, you refuse to see other people as people and you use them for your own pleasure and your own means, it gets deadly very, very quickly, especially when it comes to children. So there's our list. There's the seven deadly sins that are the root of a lot of uh, personality. They're root out of a lot of what you feel in your soul and how you go about your life. And it's good to know what these are and how they're going to affect you. Because you got to remember, sin kills. It produces death in you. Paul said that. Not me. Paul said that sin produces death. And who's going to deliver us from this body of death? It's Jesus Christ. It's his way. It's his spirit. But you need to know what is this doing to your soul so that you can combat it properly and begin to grow in holiness and to experience the fruit of the kingdom of God, the fruit of righteousness, the fruits of the spirit, which are love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, joyfulness. And I know I'm forgetting a few, but that is what happens when you start to put to death sin and live in the Holy Spirit. Today's comment from YouTube comes courtesy of Meme Magic Moments. It's a very nice name. It rolls off the tongue very nicely. I like to respond to these comments on YouTube because you never know what people are going to say on YouTube. It's either very encouraging or it's just, you know, hell on earth. You just got to scroll through some controversial videos and you see, oh, wow, people are Wow, that's what they wrote that. And I have, I've been fortunate enough not to have too many mean comments. I'm very thankful for that. Uh, but I did post this episode where I talked about the core of Christian leadership and how the core of Christian leadership is learning to imitate Christ by being a disciple. And I talked about how hard it is to do that and how it necessary it was to learn to imitate Jesus. And meme magic moments responded to my title. There's no way they actually listened to the podcast. They just responded to my title by in their comment by saying, you become a better Christian leader by being a better Christian and by being a better leader. It's not that hard. That was their comment. So the title of my um, podcast was how to become a better Christian leader. And this person responds by, by being a better Christian and by being a better leader. It's not that hard. And I'm like, nice. 
I used to work with this guy, wonderful guy, loved him very much, but I loved giving him a hard time. He was one of those guys that's very easy to give a hard time, and he had this whiteboard next to his desk, and all the time I would walk in, I'd take one of his markers, and I'd write, all right, this is what I have for you to, to do today. I would just write, get better. And sometimes I would write, be better. Every single time he'd be like, better at what? Like, what do you want me to be better at? How? How do you want me to be better? And that's what this comment reminds me of. It just says, you just be better by being better. I like, I was working really hard to help people figure out, hey, how do I become a better Christian leader? And they're like, you know what? Just be better. And you know, how many times, how many times in our life are we doing that to ourselves? We're like, yeah, you just got to be better. You're like, how? How do I, how do I do it? Like, what do I, what do I do? How do I be better? You're like, yeah, just, just be better. Ah. The things people say on YouTube. At least it hasn't been a mean comment. I'm very thankful for that. Um, I'm very, very thankful that I haven't had mean comments on YouTube. Today's gospel comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Uh, the disciples come to Jesus, and they he's praying in a certain place, and the disciples come to him, and they're like, hey, you know, we would like to learn how to pray. We know how to pray, and we've noticed when you pray, things are a little bit different. They didn't actually say that. I'm just adding that myself. But they're basically like, they're going to him. They're like, hey, will you teach us how to pray? And this is, so here's the passage. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say... Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And then he said to them, Which one of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything, yet because, not because he was his friend, but because of his impudence, he will rise and he will give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that's today's gospel. So this is when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. You'll recall on the Sermon on the Mount, he gives a very similar prayer. Uh, There's a few more words in the Sermon on the Mount's prayer, but he gives them words to be repeated until they have learned how to pray on their own. The way that you and I learn almost everything is through imitation. We imitate those we want to be like. We imitate people who are masters at something. They ask Jesus, who is a master at prayer, how to pray, and he gives them words to learn from. That's the first way to learn how to pray is to repeat the words of a master prayer person, a master prayerer. You know what I mean? On my YouTube channel, I'm doing uh, the same thing for all of you. I'm far from a master. That's not at all what I'm, but I, I do know a little bit about prayer and I teach people how to pray by reading the Psalms and then I pray the Psalms. So I read it and then I pray it. Um, so you can pray along with me there, but Jesus, this is how he's teaching them. So he gives them words to pray, but then he gives them uh, almost like a a perspective or an attitude that they should take into prayers around that word impudence. 
which a good translation or not a translation, a good definition for that is shameless audacity. It's persistence for whatever you need. So in the story, he tells this parable of a guy who at midnight is unprepared for a guest and he needs food and he goes and knocks on that guy's door. He's like, do, do, do. I need bread. I need bread. I need bread. I need bread. And the guy says, it's not even because they're friends that he'll respond to him. It's because he won't leave the guy alone. It's because he is shamelessly uh, knocking at this guy's door. And Jesus says, you should pray that way. Now, a lot of people have abused this passage and others to name and claim health and wealth and wherever and whatever else. I name it and claim it in Jesus name. I mean, I saw a video of a guy who had, he had people, his name's Kenneth Copeland. He had people put their hands on their head and shout hair grow in Jesus name. And they would literally do it because the best that they could imagine in our short life is a head full of hair over the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he, Jesus gives us this attitude like to pray, to not give up. But then he says to ask for the Holy Spirit. Now remember, per the confession of the Nicene Creed, the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. He is the one who Jesus said, it's better for me to go so that the helper will, will come. The helper, the counselor, the comforter, the keeper, the one who convicts you of sin, the one who gives you life. Remember, we talk about sin and life. The cure for sin is life that comes through the Holy Spirit. I was reading John uh, 14 through 17 this morning. And there's, it's like the great passage on the Holy Spirit from Jesus at the Passover, his final meal with his disciples. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And the things he says about the Holy Spirit is shocking. He's going to be God in you. And Jesus in this parable is saying, ask God persistently for whatever you need. Ask him even more for the Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. That's Ephesians chapter one. And it is his goal. The goal of the Holy Spirit is to make you holy. It's to make you like Jesus. It's to turn you into a saint. So you should pray. He's there to transform you, to build you. He's there to proclaim Jesus to you. It's God in you. It's the Holy Spirit. And he says, hey, you're coming to me to learn how to pray because you want to be able to do what I do. That's what disciples want to do. They want to be like their teacher. He's like, you, if you want to be like me, you need to pray that God would give you more and more of the Holy Spirit to transform you into my likeness. So ask more and more and more. That's all I have for you today. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube. If you want to dive deeper into the Institute of Men, become a subscriber on instituteofmen.org. There you can sign up for my newsletter. You can choose a free or a paid subscription, and then you'll receive exclusive content. Any financial support of any kind is very much appreciated for this work. If you didn't like this content, just pretend you didn't listen. That helps us out too. Until next time, I'm Keaton Tucker, and this is the Institute of Men podcast.